This is Take Care. Thanks for being with us for a conversation on health and wellness, and today, Nature, produced by WRVO Public Media. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. Nature is all around us, but you might not always know it. Even as we sit in one of our studios here on the SUNY Oswego campus, we have only one window with a view of the outdoors. And that's more than many of us can say. The offices and schools we spend much of our days in don't always have natural light, accessible outdoor spaces, or even a potted plant. So what does this mean for our health? Why don't we go back to nature? Go back to nature? Yeah. What we want more than anything else is a change, and I believe that kind of a change would do us more good than going to some city or crowded resort. I know it'd be a heap more helpful for us. Our guest today will share research, anecdotes, and studies that have revealed more about the relationship between nature and our health. We'll cover the obvious, hiking outdoors to improve strength and fitness, and some of the less obvious, like planting an edible landscape to better enjoy your own backyard. And we'll also dive into the connection between mental and physical health and nature. Our first guest is known for introducing us to the concept of nature deficit disorder in his book, Last Child in the Woods. Richard Louv is a journalist and author who explores our connection to nature regularly in his work. His latest book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Richard, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. You've written a number of books about how nature can impact our lives. Can we just start with an overview of what your research shows about how nature impacts our lives? Well, sure. The new book is Our Wild Calling, and it's about our connection to animals. The first of these four books that I've done on this issue is Last Child in the Woods, and that's the book where I introduced the concept uh, of nature deficit disorder, and that really took off. The phrases entered several languages, much to my surprise, and there's really a movement out there to connect children, but also families and whole communities to nature. And that's happening at the very moment. The disconnect between humans and other life forms is more fragile than ever. Ironically, more wild animals are moving into cities more than ever. How does nature affect our health specifically? Well, there's been a lot of research. When I wrote Last Child in the Woods, I could find about 60 studies, good studies to cite. But that has grown now to around 1,000 studies, almost all of which point in the same direction, which is psychological health, physical health, cognitive functioning, our ability to learn and and, uh, create. All of those things are very enhanced by more time spent in nature. And that's true in schools. That's true in our neighborhoods. That's even true for businesses. There's a whole new field of biophilic design that is emerging to create workplaces and schools and other places that incorporate nature specifically to improve the ability to pay attention and the ability to produce. The productivity goes up, sick time goes down. So it ranges from physical health being improved more than the same amount of calories burned in an indoor gym on a treadmill compared to being outdoors. The outdoors exercise, nature-specific exercise, People get even better than they do when they're on uh, treadmills in an indoor gym. But attention deficit disorder, that's some of the most impressive research there. And so many kids have been diagnosed with that. And sometimes it's true, but a lot of times they need something else. They've been cooped up in these cubicles that that we call school rooms. And the minute many of these kids get outdoors, the teachers report, I've heard this line over and over again from teachers all over the country. They say, when I get the kids outdoors into a natural setting 
to learn. The troublemaker becomes the leader, not just well-behaved, the leader. So I wonder how many leaders we're wasting by keeping them inside all the time. Yeah. In your research, did you find a reason why people just do better when they're outside? Is it just as simple as you go outside and you feel better? Well, there are some theories. We don't know why. There's the theory that E.O. Wilson at Harvard has, which is the biophilia hypothesis, which holds that we are hardwired. We're genetically wired to have an affiliation with the rest of nature, and we need it. There's another theory about attention retention, and that holds that the kind of attention that we use when we're paying attention to a screen all the time is fine, except you burn out. And that the best way to relieve that burnout is to use another kind of attention, to use other parts of the brain. And the researchers there say that the best place to do that, the best way to do that, is simply go outside in some kind of natural setting. And that gives the brain time to recharge. It doesn't take very long. So there are theories. My theory also is uh, that people who study, the scientists who study the human senses, no longer talk about five senses. They talk about conservatively nine or ten. And some of these scientists say that human beings have as many as 30 or more human senses. They all have names. And that we're spending a lot of our time blocking out those senses. We're creating learning environments for kids and working environments for ourselves in which we stare at a screen and in order to concentrate on it, we quit paying attention. We quit using all of those senses. In fact, we purposefully block most of them out. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be the very definition of being less alive. And I don't know any parents that want their kids to be less alive. Well, your latest book focuses on the coexistence between animals and humans and how that can transform our lives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it really does focus on animals because, in part, of all of those studies I mentioned, the thousand studies, approximately, Almost all of them focus on the impact of green space. Very few of them focus on the impact of wild animals. Now, we do have research that I report on in the new book about the effect of domesticated animals on us, our dogs and cats and companion animals of other kinds. What we don't have is what happens to us when that raccoon walks through the backyard or that coyote that we encounter Yes, there may be some danger, but I believe, based on about 100 stories that are collected from people, that yes, while danger may involve be involved in some of these wild animal encounters, the payoff is extraordinary. People really do report, you know, like lightning, a sense of awe and wonder, and their senses come alive. You talked to a lot of people for this book, including theologians, and you just mentioned something interesting, talking about how this is often a sign of something bigger. Can you talk a little bit about the spiritual connection between humans and animals? Human beings have talked about that forever. We don't talk about it much anymore, but certainly our ancestors talked about that. They told stories around the fire of the encounters they had that day. Sometimes they acted them out. Sometimes they danced the story or became the bear, in a sense. And they felt much more connected to something larger through other animals. I tell the story of an encounter I had. I was in my boat, electric motor, very quiet, and I noticed on the shore a couple of vultures eating a dead carp. I moved up really cautiously and quietly to them, and they were not vultures. They were two giant golden eagles. 
And so for quite a while, I just watched them, and they watched me as they ate. Their eyes never left mine. And I felt something happened. I don't. I can't speak for the eagles. They might just have been wondering if I was uh, edible. But I went home and I told my younger son, who was home from college, about that. And I said, you know, Matthew, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is actually who I am. And I don't have the words to describe it. This is beyond human language. I did a lot of research on uh, how older religions and uh, spiritual teachers and indigenous people view that thing that happens. And they talk about it often. And certainly the people that tell their stories in the book talk about it. One way to describe it is uh, Martin Buber, the great intellectual. I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. He wrote a famous essay called I Am Thou. And he was talking about people, what happens between us. Basically, he said that you and I don't exist. What exists is between us, and that without that, we don't really exist. And that's the relationship. And he meant it a little differently than we usually use that word. He thought of it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. That's what I felt. And that's what just about everybody that I interviewed or collected their stories or they sent me their stories, everything from hardcore scientists to teachers to kids, they all described that one way or another about that change they felt. And once you have that feeling, and most of us did when we were little, you want to have it again. And it has an effect on your life. Now, there's been a lot of research that's shown that animals like dogs can help young people, teenagers with depression and anxiety. And we've seen more and more people bringing service animals along with them or comfort animals. And a lot of college campuses hold anti-stress events for students and they bring in dogs for people to pet. How can interacting more with animals help these feelings of loneliness or depression? Well, in Our Wild Calling, I talk about the epidemic of loneliness in the world. Medical folks are saying now that loneliness may be about to surpass obesity as a cause of early death. And that's an extraordinary thing. And they're not just talking about suicide. They're talking about all the diseases that are associated with human isolation. And this is a new phenomenon. And one of the studies on this shows that the younger the generation, the more lonely it is. Now, that's astonishing because it used to be the other way around, and suddenly it's flipped. What does it say about a society in which the youngest of us are the loneliest? I think that that loneliness can be attributed to a lot of things, too much time on Facebook, all the things you usually hear. But in our wild calling, I suggest that it's rooted in a much deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. The urban parks that have the best benefits for human psychological health happen to be the ones with the highest biodiversity, with the most plants and animals. That's no accident. I think that as a species, we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking tells us that might not be a good idea to find? We're desperate to feel this sense of connection with other life. And increasingly, we don't get it. And I think unless we turn that around, two things are going to happen. One is that we are going to become by far the loneliest species. We may already be that. And the other thing is that we'll lose our connection to other animals, and we will not protect them. So it becomes a vicious cycle at that point. The students at your campus who are doing that intuitively know that. I mean, we know that we have this species loneliness. 
we're lonely for other people, but we also have this need for connection to other animals. And that may be the fastest growing form of self-medication that's not drug-related in our culture right now, is our connection to animals. There's more dogs than there ever have been. There are many of these organizations cropping up to connect people to other animals. You're calling for a transformation of how we view our environment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why, why do we need to change the way we view our environment? Well, because the way we're viewing it now is not working out well. I mean, we're destroying the very thing that nurtures us. And I think that this is a new stage that environmentalism, conservation, needs to move into. Increasingly, environmentalism, conservation, talks about data, the number of inches the sea rises, the number of endangered species. It's always about the numbers. Biology in school has become more math than life for many kids. And there's nothing wrong with that and nothing wrong with microbiology, but starting at the college level and on down, traditional field studies and biological knowledge has been pushed aside for creating things in the lab that we can commercialize. So I think that unless we find our heart again, in a sense, and that heart is connected to other life, then the environmental movement will die. In our wild calling, I call that thing that happened between me and the eagles and between so many people and the animals they encounter or know, I call that the habitat of the heart. I think there are two habitats. There's a physical habitat that we pay a lot of attention to and try to protect, as we should. But then there's this other habitat, the habitat of the heart. And if one of those two habitats goes, so does the other one. If you sense a certain sense of urgency in my voice, it's there. We need to pay attention. You uh, talked about your previous book called Last Child in the Woods, and that was about children and nature. And you mentioned the term nature deficit disorder. And I'm curious, how do you think we can combat this nature deficit? Specifically, how would you recommend we go about reconnecting with, with nature and with animals? I think the two words that summarize both Our Wild Calling and my other books on this, including Last Child, are pay attention. Pay attention to the animal that walks by your window. Pay attention to the life around you. Pay attention even in the densest of urban neighborhoods. Pay attention to the life that's there that's non-human, both plant and animal. But then take action. Make sure your family's getting outdoors. Make sure your school has a green schoolyard or a natural learning area. Cities can be transformed. I believe that cities can be engines of biodiversity, not the enemy of them. We can do this on our roofs by planting native species in our backyards, by creating a, what Doug Ptolemy in Delaware calls a homegrown national park starting in our backyards just by planting native species that brings back the food chain, that brings back butterfly migration routes, bird migration routes. And in taking action, we actually cure ourselves of this nature deficit disorder, which hurts us, which hurts our psychological health, our physical health, and I think also our spiritual health. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Richard Louvre is the author of the book Our Wild Calling and others on the subject of nature, health, and our relationship to the world around us. He's also co-founder and chair emeritus of the nonprofit Children and Nature Network. Whereabouts is this nature place at? Well, it ain't no certain place. It's just every place where civilization ain't been yet. How? Huh? It's up in the hills or out in the forests or down by the river. 
Places where animals live, but no humans. Get back to the land. Get back to the good earth and live like our ancestors done. When we return, we'll discuss ways to improve your health in the garden with a garden historian and ethnobotanist. Like who done? Our ancestors. Well, I never heard of them. This is Take Care. We're sharing some discussions with you this week about our relationship with nature and how it has direct implications on our health. In this next interview, you get out what you put in. You remember the day we planted that cedar tree in my front yard? Yes, Luther. Now, suppose I left a little seedling out in the hot sun with no water. What would have happened to it? It would have died. Uh, uh, but we planted it. We used the earth, and we watered the roots, and we tended it, and it grew, didn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I merely started it. The richness of the soil and the minerals and the rain did the rest. When was the last time you had dirt under your fingernails, and not just from raking leaves or trying to hang Christmas lights from your gutters? Our next guest thinks that if it's been a while, maybe it's time you get back out in nature. But, and this will be good news to many of us, you don't have to go far. In fact, your backyard will do. Most of us get food from the grocery store, and we know that in some areas and in some climates, that's absolutely a necessity. But what if you could supplement what's in your cart with what's in your backyard? John Forty joins us to share how. Forty is a nationally recognized lecturer, garden historian, ethnobotanist, and garden writer. He's currently executive director of Bedrock Gardens, an emerging 37-acre public garden in New Hampshire. So I'm going to start with a pretty broad question. When we use the term edible landscape, what are we talking about? Well, there's a broad spectrum because I think when we plant edibles, it reminds us that we live in habitat and we enrich our habitat by the things we plant. And that might be for our family. It might be for the chickadees that land outside in a shrub that we planted that's covered with berries. To me, it's, you know, that reminder of living in habitat that says just plant anything that's edible and then find your way through a landscape and learn more about the plants that you can use for food and medicine but also maybe as alternatives to putting up a bird feeder or to um, putting up a suet cake because there's a lot just in the nature of planting that will attract wildlife and pollinators. I think that's an important distinction, too. When we talk about edible landscapes, it's not just us going into the woods looking for things we can eat. It's things that might have medicinal purposes. It's foods that we might be able to plant that would attract animals and insects, that kind of thing. And I think that's an important factor to consider when we make purchases. So many of the things we buy from garden centers or our farmer's markets have multiple uses that we can consider. But instead of buying a sterile hybrid clone, we can buy plants that are actually fruiting and nutting and seeding in ways that benefit the larger environment. And I think today we've all learned that that's an important distinction as we try to minimize our lawns and plant for enrichment of habitat, we're seeing an upsurge in pollinators and in butterflies and bird populations that really were declining rapidly when lawns took over America. But I also think if we are going to share in eating these plants, it really helps us to consider the quality of the air and the soil and the water where we live. To me, that's one of the most important factors in the return of the local foods movement as well. We, we reconsider the importance of our environment where we live because we're now able to feed ourselves from our local environments again. 
I want to talk a little bit more about our lawns and our yards in, in just a couple of minutes, but I want to spend just a minute to talk about things like foraging. If, if this is something that's new to you and you want to go outside and you want to forage for edible plants, what are some things that you could easily look for if you're very new to this type of thing? Well, I'd say none of us are really new to this. It might sound like the newest hipster trend out of Brooklyn, but Maybe it was a discovery for some people in cities, but overall, all of us grew up foraging. We picked blackberries and blueberries, and that's the important distinction for me is to start with the plants you already know. Don't try to go out mushrooming for the first time you want to go foraging because there are layers of complexity. But if you start with the plants you already know, there are lots of wild things to forage, but also not just going into the wild if you're not as comfortable with that, but again, planting raspberries and blueberries, maybe planting Jerusalem artichokes and ostrich ferns for fiddleheads. When we go out foraging, there are lots of simple plants as well, like uh, sumac that we can use for a spice. And I think many of us grow up fearing nature more than trusting in it. And yes, there's a poison sumac, but it looks nothing like the sumac you see growing everywhere around you with red seed clusters. Poison sumac is white, uh, has white berries. But you can make za'atar um, or make lemonade and spice mixes from sumac that has 500 times the vitamin C of an orange or put it into mixed drinks. So it's having fun with the plants that are around you like that. Maybe considering strawberries out in your landscape or even root crops like Jerusalem artichoke and groundnuts and wild garlic. For somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience with this, you mentioned mushrooms. I'm curious if there are other things that we should just never go out and pick. I would suggest that you don't pick anything that you don't know. <laughs> the great thing about the Internet is you can look up things, but it's also part of rebuilding community to me is going to the farmer's markets, going to uh, the woods with friends and learning together. So don't try anything that you have never eaten before and that you don't recognize. But also remember how much there is to forage out there. Where we live in the Northeast, there are so many old apple trees that you find in the wild, so many grapevines that have been cultivated or native that we can find. Start with the things that are comfortable and are familiar, because a strawberry is a strawberry is a strawberry. <laughs> And those are things we can take some comfort in harvesting and knowing that that blueberry is going to be just fine when you eat it. And in fact, it'll be minus a lot of the chemicals that show up in produce in our supermarket. So really a lot safer and a lot more nutritious in many ways. Getting back to uh, talking about our lawns and our yards, over the last several decades, that's kind of become a thing. You drive down the street and you see these well-manicured, watered lawns that a lot of us have. They may look good, but are they good for the environment? Are they good for us? Well, they're good for the convenience of the mow-and-blow crews that people hire. I think in another day and age, more people were accustomed to gardening and working that landscape that they lived in. And it's convenient to, you know, mow it all down, have huge wide open swaths, have a company install irrigation, and put down a lot of pesticides and fertilizers. But I think what we've come to realize in recent decades is that over 70% of the agricultural chemicals that were in use in the course of our lifetimes and our parents' lifetimes have been quietly disappeared from the market because of toxicity issues. And our lawns are a major contributor to that. They're water hogs, and 
really for the all, all the emissions of leaf blowers and things, it's great to, I won't say eradicate lawns because everybody should do whatever they feel like in their own yards. But to me, the goal is to minimize my lawn. I put an orchard in out behind my house. I let my lawn be a diverse landscape instead of a monoculture with just grass. My lawn is full of all kinds of things, thyme and yarrow and violets and ajuga and English daisies and moss and wintergreen, depending on the light in different areas, violets that can grow. And really, I can brew beer from my lawn. I can make salads from my lawn. And it's another safe landscape that I know I'm not putting chemicals into to make it a controlled monoculture. And I find it's far more beautiful. It's also more productive if you can find a space to garden in or to plant some fruiting things in your yard so that those things are close at hand and they inspire our daily diet. So if you're a person that you, maybe you don't have a large lawn and you have a fairly small space, and if you want to make that space better for the environment and you want to make it, say, more edible, what are some suggestions that you might have for somebody with a small space like that? I think most of us are in a situation where we have urban yards, and I like to plant from the edges. I'll start with a tree layer that maybe I have some fruit and nut trees, and then I'll build a shrub layer in so that I have things like Juneberries or shad bush and blueberries and elderberries. And then I'll build down to a perennial layer of, I really love working with perennial herbs and vegetables um, that come back year after year so that I have things like sorrel and rhubarb, plants that really I can go to time after time. And they're sort of like my landscape beds along the margin maybe some raspberries and then, uh, but working down to lower levels closer to the lawn area, I might put in a few herb beds and vegetable beds. I think raised beds can sometimes help people work in a small space and keep some order to it, but it might just be a strawberry patch or converting a parcel of your lawn over to, you know, again, something like strawberries and uh, that will just replace lawn, but also give you some edible foods some nutritious medicinal properties, and also feed some wildlife. And aside from eating these healthier foods, how is gardening good for your health? Well, when we consider what we've been learning in recent years, most of our foods in the commercial stream have been shipped thousands of miles before they get to our house. That means in most instances they were harvested long before they were truly ripe. When we grow something to full ripeness in the sun, it has sometimes as much as 70% greater nutritional value than something that has been in storage and that never really attained that ripeness. But I think also, as the vice president of Slow Food, an organization I work with, likes to say, this is a delicious revolution. Everybody that eats a tomato hot and ripe from the sun knows that that is better for your body as well as more delicious. It's the thing you can taste. But I also think every cup of tea we make from our garden, every herb that we put into a cook pot, or things we turn into ointments and salves and bitters and tinctures, they all help us remember how to work with the plants in our landscape and really how to have fun with the process of being a gardener again. The medicinal properties, I think, aren't a big mystery in the old way of looking at things that the first immigrants brought with them in the 17th century. They would say the cook is half a physician. 
basic nutrition is medicinal. It's about wellness. And when we get to know our plants better, maybe we know that the sorrel that we're growing is full of vitamin C or that beets are good for our blood or spinach is good for iron. They're all parts of it. But sometimes we also learn that all of these traditional recipes that have been handed down to us came for reasons that our ancestors knew intuitively, rubbing garlic onto a wooden cutting board or lemon to keep it clean and safe environment, or stuffing the cavity of a bird with sage at Thanksgiving or any meal because bacteria would form in the cavity of a bird, and today we know sage is antibacterial. So it's part of the whole learning process that we get to enjoy when we're gardeners using the things around us. A lot of communities around the nation seem to be going through a bit of an agricultural renaissance. We're seeing a lot of younger people starting farms. Why is that? I've always liked to say that the bigger the mainstream gets, the more room there is for an undercurrent. I think we see a deep dissatisfaction in our country, and people can't always put their finger on why. But consumer culture has probably overrun our democracy at this point. And for me, when we have alternatives, local agriculture means we've taken back control from a system that really has almost disallowed organic to come into a marketplace or that ships things in ways that just don't suit. When we rebuild local agricultural systems, we keep farmland viable for a day when we realize that shipping produce thousands of miles is not going to be affordable with petroleum prices rising and with petrochemicals going in our fields. So a large part of it to me is people coming back around to work with the new local industry. We worry about losing industry in America. And to me, This is what's shaping up in all of our farmers' markets around the country, new local economies that are cottage industries and fresh produce that are enriching our lives and creating new community centers where people can gather outside that mainstream supermarket and find things that not only nourish body but mind and spirit because we know we're supporting something that's building better opportunities for our communities, for young farmers but also for our regional environments where we start to take care again because we know we're eating from that soil. Thank you very much for your time today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for having me. John Forty is a garden historian, ethnobotanist, and executive director of Bedrock Gardens. His next book is out next year, and you can find more information online at wrvo.org. You're listening to Take Care, produced by WRVO Public Media. Many years ago, a plan was put in motion for a natural healing environment for injured service members and their families. The Green Road Project, as it's now called, is located at Naval Support Activity Bethesda, home of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. It's a fairly busy suburban area, but there's a section of the property that's fashioned into a park of sorts, with pavilions, a creek, mature woods, paths, and bridges. It was designed with healing in mind, where benches serve as an invitation to pause, rest, and be present. And our next guest says it's already having a positive impact. Dr. Fred Foote is a retired U.S. Navy physician, neurologist, professor, and project administrator for the Green Road Project. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Foote. Thank you, Catherine. Glad to be here. So if you could just describe what the Green Road Project is. Sure. The first thing I should say is, although I'm retired military and the project is at Walter Reed, none of us here speak for the U.S. government. 
We've had the privilege of doing a lot of holistic care projects at Walter Reed. One of the important areas is to heal with nature. We're seeing all kinds of evidence that both diseases and general health and community health are healed by exposure to nature and green space. As we have in the military a lot of soldiers with PTSD and brain injury, we believed that we could give them a nature space and heal their PTSD and brain injury. So that was the concept of the Green Road. Basically, with a public-private partnership between our philanthropy group, led by the Institute for Integrative Health and funded by TKF Foundation, we built a half-mile-long green corridor with a wheelchair path through the center of our Walter Reed Medical Center campus. And in the center, we created a woodland healing garden where direct encounter with woodland nature elements can heal PTSD. We opened in 2017, and our research is showing very positive results on the wounded warriors and others at Walter Reed. So the garden is, like you said, in the middle of Walter Reed, which is in a very busy suburban area. When you go into it, what does it physically look like and feel like? Well, it's a ravine. We're blessed with some green space on that campus, and there's a patch of woodland. It has a ravine going down to a natural stream that's part of Rock Creek. It flows into the main creek in Washington. It's a clean little stream and uh, has fish and critters in it. So we developed the ravine by doing two pavilions, one for social life and one to honor our fallen comrades, a kind of a sacred pavilion. We put in some other elements like a council ring and we built paths to get the soldiers into the stream to interact with the critters in the stream and be with the water environment, which we found to be very healing. And then the last thing is simply to have a path that goes all the way through it that's wheelchair accessible and links up to the major wheelchair path of a half a mile through the green space of the campus. And you mentioned patients with PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Are there other patients that this is beneficial for? For sure. There's a lot of evidence that nature heals all kinds of disease. Hospitalized patients get better faster and have less problems if there's nature in their rooms. And both for psychiatric disease and physical disease, Community green space is so important. We all know a park makes our spirits rise, but not everyone knows the mathematics of this. Uh, European studies have shown that every time you decrease the green space in a city by 1%, the health effects are like adding an additional year of aging to everyone who lives there. And conversely, if you increase green space, rates of mental and physical disease go down, sometimes by 50%. So the whole idea of getting stressed people of all kinds into nature is the future for medicine. Do you think that the Green Road Project can tell us things about how nature could help other kinds of patients or injuries or diseases besides the military patients that are using this one? Any stressed population will benefit from an enhancement of nature. Let's say some of your readers have a PTSD or any physical disorder. Yes, they should see a therapist. Yes, they should see their doctor. But they should immediately begin to seek time out in the outdoors to heal them. Our Green Road research is fairly small scale, but we are testing the effects on uh, physical and mental health on about 50 patients. And so far, we're seeing very striking uh, improvements in a lot of uh, mental health and physical health parameters. Are there more specific things about being in nature that you think can help humans? You know, it's a debate why this stuff works so well. We know it does work well, but we're still trying to figure out why. 
I put nature healing in the realm of whole body medicine. This is an area we've pioneered at Walter Reed to treat the PTSD and brain injury. There are actually two kinds of treatments. One is your pills and surgery. Those only treat one organ of the body at a time. You've got a heart problem, you take a heart pill and so on. Nature and art and these other therapies that we put in do not just treat one organ, they treat the whole body at once. So we call this whole body medicine. And the medicine of the future is keep the pills and surgery, that's fine, but also add in to the organ system medicine, the whole body medicine in nutrition, in acupuncture, in nature, and in healing through the arts. So this is kind of the big picture of where things are going with this type of healing. So it is kind of difficult to measure the impacts. Well, here's the deal. You all know you get a blood test for your heart condition, right? All of our lab tests are geared to single organs because that's the kind of medicine we have right now. We know that the whole body therapies work, but we need to develop lab tests that measure the whole body at once and not just one organ system. We're pioneering this in our green road. It turns out that uh, there are several ways you can actually measure whole body health. Scan the whole body at once and watch it change from an illness state to a wellness state. And these include study of certain genes in saliva or uh, in the blood. Um, studies of your language, how you speak and the things that you say. We can analyze that for signs of healing of the body and signs that your stress systems are being turned down. And these are three of the areas that we're pursuing at Walter Reed to develop a battery of whole body lab tests that can make this totally scientific in everyone's eyes. We should have that process completed in five to 10 years. And that's a key agenda for integrating whole body medicine with the kind of medicine we have now for organs. Do any specific stories come to mind about soldiers or veterans who have been helped by the Green Road Project? We had some uh, Navy SEALs out on the site not too long ago. And of course, they were in love with the healing powers of the garden and felt that this was a tremendous feeling of safety and reassurance and a decrease of stress for them. And you know, these guys have their military language. They say, you know what? There are three uh, levels of importance that the military establishes. One is mission critical. You must have it or the mission may fail. The mission important where, you know, it's a nice important thing, but not the whole ball game. And the third is like mission neutral, which is it's good to have, but it's not that important for us to do our mission. These Navy SEALs said in their interview that they consider the exposure to nature we're doing mission critical, the top category of what's important to help our soldiers do their duties. Wow, that's really a testament for sure. And as you've said, this is part of a holistic approach or whole body approach to healing injuries and that sort of thing. What other forms of integrated health are being used in conjunction with the Green Road Project? Well, we built a, a new hospital at Walter Reed with good sums of your taxpayer money. Thank you very much. And the goal of it was to create a facility that really would be able to heal brain injury, PTSD, our big problems from the Iraq-Afghan wars. We actually have done 12 projects across the medical center for innovative new forms of treatment. They're all whole body type of interventions. Anything that treats your whole body at once and not one organ is called whole body, right? So healing buildings, which make you better just to walk in the door or be in the healing hospital room is part of that. And we built a lot of those buildings. We also started family-centered care because if you get the family better, you get the soldier better. And that's whole body medicine. 
Then there's also been integration of care programs, including advanced therapeutics units to bring everything together to heal the whole body. Finally, you've got healing through art, nature, and spirituality, which we're talking about here. Uh, nutrition and exercise programs and things like acupuncture, all those are whole body treatments and we've built and implemented all of them at the new Walter Reed and they're showing very strong effects at increasing our healing rates. When you think about military hospitals or veterans hospitals, you don't automatically think of green space or a park. So when the Green Road Project was first discussed, what kind of skepticism was expressed about why this should be done? I'd be lying if I said the military was the easiest place to do this stuff, but I've pretty much been surprised by how quickly people get it once they can see it in action and get the feel of it. So uh, specifically with the Green Road, it took us seven years, and that included a lot of bureaucracy. We had to file enormous papers with the government. Some of them took years to work their way through government regulations and bureaucracies in order to pull this off. But the striking thing is, when I went in and talked to the commanding officer of the base, who's the one who has to approve this project, every single one was, once they got the idea, was tremendously supportive. I had four commanding officers in a row, each one for two years, and every last one of them came up and really gave great support to the project. So the military is funny. There's obstacles, but then there's also, they get it. These are guys who hunt, these are guys who spend their lives outdoors, and we were able to make that positive connection to uh, get the support. We've talked a lot about PTSD, but it seems to me a lot of what you're describing could be helpful for non-military mental health conditions as well. Absolutely. And in mental health units, you want to have nature in the unit where people are maybe in the hospital. Those who have mental health issues of any kind, yeah, you should see your therapist. You bet you should. But you should also be making art or music and be studying that. And you should also be programming time in green space and making yourself an outdoor person. I tell people, because I'm a diplomat, hey guys, our usual medicine of pills and surgery is very important. But remember that this whole body of holistic medicine, it's equally important. If we put them together, we'll double our healing power. The truth of the matter is, in my opinion, that the holistic whole body treatments are probably going to end up being three or four times more powerful than our medications. But, you know, we're happy to see an even split here as long as people get the message that any sick person must have access to nature. B, if any mental health condition, you want to spend time in nature as well as with your therapist. Just as you were saying about mental health conditions, you mentioned earlier it's true for any condition. This is meant as a supplement. Yeah, that's right. And we say, hey, you know, don't throw away your heart pill. It's doing its job. But add in the whole body. For example, anybody with a pain syndrome, right? You go to pain clinic, you get your pain medicine, but they should be taking acupuncture. Any pain patient should be on acupuncture. One of the striking things about whole body medicine in general is it never harms you. The overall harm rate of all these therapies we're discussing has been studied as less than one half of 1% of people who are harmed. Now, drugs and surgery have significantly higher rates where things don't go so well. So one of the selling points for holistic medicine is that it does a lot for you and there's minimal risk that it will do you any harm. What do you see down the road next in terms of treatment in the military from a holistic, non-traditional approach? Like, what would you like to see happen next? We kind of 
we're the python swallowing the jungle pig here. The next 10 years are gonna be for development and spread. We've had the good fortune that because we're at Walter Reed, Walter Reed is like our flagship. It's our biggest hospital and the president goes there. It's in Washington. It's got a lot of visibility. So a top priority for now is keep things going at Walter Reed, but also spread it to all the other military hospitals that are across the nation. You know, we have 10 million people in our health system, including retirees, you know, beat up pieces of scar like me, whose time has probably come to turn over to the young. But we have a lot of people and a lot of facilities to spread this to. We're also working with the VA. They've got some of the same fever and they're doing some of the same stuff. And then to pursue this problem of measurement, the biggest single thing we want in the next 10 years is for people to join us in the use of advanced genetics, the analysis of language, and stress system analysis to prove scientifically the benefits of this type of therapy. And then do you hope that some of these approaches spread beyond the military into other more civilian hospitals? Very definitely. In fact, there's an organization called SHIFT, and they are a national organization out in Wyoming that promotes therapy in the outdoors and just recreational use of the outdoors nationwide. I was out there a month ago to preach to them about this stuff. They gave us a little award for the Green Road. And, you know, it was a tremendous excitement over the possibilities of the future as we really get people back into nature instead of living totally in artificial environments. You know, Catherine, there's a big picture side of this. Our whole body medicine is all part of a general rediscovery of sacred experience in our society. And this is going to affect the way we live in the future, the way we do economies, the way that we do communities. We're basically going to move, I think, from a society that kind of consumes things, uses them up and throws them away, and maybe consumes people and throws them away, to one where we have stable communities that keep people and things tend them, care for them, make them live on sustainably, and have a great gain, both spiritually and in terms of the functioning of communities. So, you know, this is all kind of green stuff, but the future is very exciting for many disciplines that are turning this way. Well, we look forward to hearing what advances there are in this area in the future. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Foote. Thank you, Catherine. Have a good day. Dr. Fred Foote is a retired Navy physician and project administrator for the Green Road Project at Naval Support Activity Bethesda, home of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And now for the latest in health, what comes up must come down. It works when you throw a ball, ride a roller coaster, or hike a mountain. But how beneficial is hiking to your health? So you're off on a hiking trip. Yes, I am, Mr. Bergen. Yeah, off I go. With a song in my heart, adventure in my soul, and blister on my heel. It seems to be gaining in popularity these days, and maybe that's just for the selfies and panoramic Facebook photos. But it's also a big benefit to your body. We learn more next from James Navalta, American College of Sports Medicine fellow and associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Science at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Navalta. It's my pleasure. Part of your research focuses on the physiological responses to outdoor exercise, like hiking and trail running. How does the body respond to exercising outdoors? Well, there are a couple of factors to consider. There is a fair amount of research that has looked at just the benefits of being outdoors. There are a number of things, uh, such as looking at the cardiovascular system, as far as just being outdoors, resting, uh, heart rate decreases, 
there's evidence that blood pressure decreases. And then once you add in the exercise, you have uh, an increase in something called rate pressure product. And essentially what that is, it's a an indicator of how hard the heart is working. And that actually increases with exercise. And what does hiking help specifically if somebody's looking for an outdoor kind of exercise? So if you compare it to indoor exercise, say you are walking on the treadmill. The treadmill kind of constrains you to the same type of movements over and over. And that's not bad in and of itself, but over time it could open you up to some overuse type of injuries. Hiking or trail running, anything that you do outside has a lot of variability with it. So it kind of overcomes that repetitive muscle movement. Tell us about some more of those benefits. So there is a fair amount of research that's been done looking at the immune system. There was a study that they did in Japan, and what they found was that they looked at markers for cancer, and and what they found was that being outside and then also walking and immersing yourself in nature actually was beneficial for increasing the kind of factors that decreases certain types of cancer. When you get out into nature, there are respiratory benefits, especially if you live in a somewhat big city and pollution and things like that. Getting out away from all of that can be beneficial for your lungs and your respiratory system. Well, and I think also people think about being in nature as positive to the mental side. Is there research on that? Yes, absolutely. There is an increase in sense of comfort and calm. Anxiety levels go down. There's even some research that has shown that people's perception of headaches decreases as you get into nature. So, you know, I think a lot of us maybe spent time outdoors more when we were kids, and then we all grew up and sat behind computers, right? So (laughs) what's your advice to listeners who feel like hiking is a daunting thing to start? I would say just go ahead and start off and do it. It doesn't have to be where you're hiking on two or three day trips. James Navalta is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Science at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Thanks for being with us on this episode of Take Care, produced by WRVO Public Media. You can send questions or comments via email to takecare at wrvo.org or just find us on social media. This show and others are available online at wrvo.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Take Care is produced by me, Catherine Loper, Jason Smith, Leah Landry, and Mark Lavonier. Mark also wrote and performed the music you've heard throughout today's show. Support for Take Care comes from the Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Catherine Loper. Thanks for tuning in to Take Care. Take Care.